Hey there, welcome to the Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we can have just a little bit more courage to be able to love the hell out of this world. My name is Reverend Sean. I am one of your hosts. And today is, geez, it is a hard episode, but it's a really good episode. You know, we've come to the end of our gender fluent series, which has been, I think, really transformative for a lot of us. Actually, side note, you're going to have a bonus episode, which is going to come out in a few days which is going to be tackling some of the questions that we got in the question box that I couldn't fit into this episode because we started to have a conversation and it took like an hour because the questions were so good. In the past week, we're recording this in March of 2023, we have just seen a profound number of states target queer and trans and non-binary people. States like Alabama, Arkansas, Arizona, Florida, Mississippi, South Dakota, Utah have banned gender-affirming care. It's expected that Soon, one out of three Americans will live in a state that restricts gender-affirming care for young people, sometimes even under the age of 23. Now, we don't know the constitutionality of any of these laws. They're going to be challenged in court. But the reality is that right now, queer and trans people are facing a degree of overt public attack that has been unknown in the last 10 years. Embrazened by the fall of Roe and the stacking of the Supreme Court, There's a movement in the religious right to scapegoat queer and trans people, because when you have a scapegoat, um, you're able to fan the fuels of discord um, and grievance. And that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing trans and queer people across this country being pointed to as the problem. And it's kind of demoralizing, I'll say, as a queer person to look out and see the rise of this sort of rhetoric in public. And it can be hard to know how to respond And one of the ways that we are responding is to break the silence. You know, as queer people, we are conditioned to live in silence. That is, the experience of being in the closet is what seduces us into thinking we are safe. And yet, it also disconnects us from our powerfulness. And right now, but yet we have a lot of power. We have the power to love each other. We have the power to fight, to break the silence, to see our allies, to build community, to refuse to be quiet about the unmistakable beauty of queerness and genders that don't conform. You know, love has and always will be our ultimate trump card. And so today on the episode of Deeper, we are going to be tackling some of the key pieces of misinformation that we are seeing that is promulgated by mostly conservatives on the right, but also people of all political stripes. So today on the episode, we're going to do something different. You're going to hear one of us give a good faith articulation of the misinformation that is out there in the wild, that is perpetuated by many sources, primarily from right-wing conservatives in the media, but also makes its way into many different places along the political spectrum. That um, good faith articulation will be counteracted by one of our ministers stepping up and providing a response that is rooted in our faith's perspective. Now, just a disclaimer, you know, in articulating the talking point, we've done our best to, one, make a good faith articulation, which is to take the argument at its core without sensationalizing it, really trying to get at the heart of what they're saying. It's important to do this because it helps us notice when we're hearing it, especially in the more reasoned ways that our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers bring it to us. But it also means that you're going to hear on this podcast content that is repeating some really transphobic, some really homophobic. And we do it because we want to help us identify it in the wild, but also just naming, hey, if you don't want to be hearing that, it's not gratuitous, but it is there, maybe log off. So the first talking point that we're going to tackle has to do with drag. Now, Tennessee is the first state to ban, quote unquote, male and female impersonation of a purient interest in a place that isn't a adult cabaret venue, whatever that means. Now, this law is pretty much an attack on not only freedom of expression, but also trans people existing in many ways. So here is the good faith articulation of the point that is being made. Drag is primarily an art form where performers engage in forms of gender impersonation, dressing in revealing clothes and dancing in explicit ways. What people do in their free time in private is their business, but the state and society has an interest in protecting children from being exposed to inappropriate imagery, sexualized behavior, and adult references. Just like age restrictions for movies or other entertainment venues, obscene performances should be kept away from minors. That is why drag should be restricted in public spaces, and minors should not be exposed to it. 
Now, to help us kind of combat this talking point, we invited Chris, a local drag performer, who performs under the name Chris Sagana, to talk about what drag means for him. Chris is a media artist, a producer, a deeply involved member of our Northern Colorado community. And so here is Chris talking about why drag is actually a liberating queer art form that can be for everyone. Why have drag queens become a much more divisive issue in the last couple of years? Are they really targeting children? Is drag in general evil? designed to make people derail off their paths of morals and traditional family values. Why is part of the Republican Party so scared of drag story hour? And also, what is drag really? I'm Chris, also known as Chris Agana, drag queen, producer, multimedia artist, and I'm here to talk about it. So let's start from the beginning. What is drag really? I'm gonna tell you what I tell everyone who asks me this question. If you ask 10 drag performers what drag is, you're gonna get 10 different answers, and I'm here to give you mine. There are two explanations for where the term drag came from, and no one knows which one is right. The first one is Shakespeare. Yes, back in the day when women were not allowed to be part of dramatic plays, men had to play the roles of women, and in the scripts, the wardrobe directions for those actors had written down, dressed resembling a girl, D-R-A-G, or drag. The other historical explanation is that in the 1800s, a black gay man formerly enslaved called William Dorsey Swan used to organize secret parties or balls in which gay and gender non-conforming people would dress up as they wanted. William Dorsey Swan referred to himself as the queen of drag because he was notorious for wearing beautiful long gowns and he would drag the train of those gowns across these balls. These balls were raided by the police constantly and at age 30, he was arrested for the first time. One of the times he was arrested is the first documented case in the United States of an arrest for female impersonation on April 12, 1888. Female impersonation. That is one of the possible answers to what drag is, and that is a more traditional way of seeing drag. For me, and for so many other people, drag is an art form that can tackle gender, but can go way beyond that. It's an art form that can be as vast as you want it to be. And as any other type of art, it can be purely aesthetic and decorative, or it can ask questions, it can create reflections, it can cause reactions, and it can be purely fun. What drag has been accused of is targeting children. And while people who accuse drag queens of that use the term grooming. As a non-native speaker, I always thought grooming was what you got done to your hair or your beard when you had a special event to go to. But no, they say it sexualizes children or that it indoctrinates them to this perverted lifestyle. I feel like this has been said before in the past. But let's think about other types of art. Can you help me name a few? I'll start. Movies, music, writing, dancing, comics. There's a lot of them, right? So drag is one type of art. And just like all these other types of art, it can intersect. A song is music and it can involve writing as well for the lyrics or poetry. And the music video for that song might need some acting, it might need animation, it might need dancing because the singer might have to do a choreography. And the singer and the dancers might need a very stylish wardrobe. So I think you got it. So art can be multidisciplinary and as a type of art, drag can be too. Now, are all movies for kids? No, some are for adults only and sometimes not even because it has sexual content but because it might be violent or scary. Drag shows are the same. There are drag shows for adults and there are drag shows for all ages. And Drag Story Hour is basically drag queens reading children's books to children. Now, there are some types of movies in which viewer or parental discretion is advised. An art exhibit or a pop star show might contain that same announcement. Speaking of pop stars, let's go back to the early 90s. If you're very young, you probably have heard about Madonna. Back in that time, she was the biggest pop star in the whole world. 
She pushed the envelope and her performances were very sexualized and also thought-provoking. The Catholic Church and conservative people hated her. She was excommunicated by the Pope himself only because she was in charge of her own sexuality and had opinions. Many years later, in the early 2000s, as she was still doing her performances and her tours, she decided to also write children's books. Conservatives were up in arms. How dare she could write children's books after all the sexualized work she had done before? Now, her books had nothing to do with her music and what she did on stage. The books were actually tales about growing up, treating others with respect, and not judging people by their appearances. A drag performer is an artist, and as such, they should be free to explore their art. And it is people's right to decide what kind of show they want to see or their family. Politicians should not decide if an entire form of art should or should not be created whatsoever. But it really isn't about the art, is it? Extremely conservative politicians actually want to use this as a way to target something else they don't understand. Trans people. Just like they didn't understand gay people in the past, trying to attach lewd, illegal, and abusive behavior to their very identity. Tennessee just passed a law banning drag shows, but without using the term drag in it. They use the term adult cabaret, which can be one form of interdisciplinary drag. Their law defines an adult cabaret performance as a performance, and I quote, that features topless dancers, go-go dancers, exotic dancers, strippers, male or female impersonators who provide entertainment that appeals to a prurient interest or similar entertainers. Do you hear that? Male or female impersonators. It's like we're back in the 1800s. The difference here is that a trans person who is not an impersonator could be restricted from performing anything in a public space because of narrow-minded, powerful people who don't know the difference between an art form and an identity. People who think trans people should not exist. This law is yet again another attack on a community that is already so stigmatized. It is an attempt to take trans people away from public life, public eye, as if they don't exist, which is the world that these conservative people want to live in. So this topic can go on and on. The bottom line is, Drag is a form of art. It has historically been rooted in the fight of queer people to find a place in this society, and the very existence of this community challenges the heteronormative binary dominant system. It's an art form that can take many shapes, it can have different audiences, and it can be about multiple subjects. Just like every single type of art created by humans. Art keeps us sane and it helps humans connect, and trying to make people believe drag is evil is an attempt to disconnect the queer community from this world and this society that we do belong to. But we're not going anywhere, but we do need allies. Okay, not everyone is willing to have their views on how the world works or should work challenged, and I'm not here to give you answers on how to change people's minds. I'm here to give you my take on drag. I've tried to change people's minds about queer issues, and uh, I've been successful and I've also failed many times, including with my family. I think the way is to try to help build community and for those people who don't want to be part of it because of ignorance, just try to make them see people as humans. And demonizing what you don't understand in order to exterminate it is what religious people used to do, and some still. Turning the unknown into a demon. Trying to humanize a minority in the eyes of an ignorant or a gullible person is always the best tactic to reach and plant a seed in their hearts. Now, those who create ill-intended laws in order to target us or other minorities that we are allies to using ignorance as a fuel for hate, we vote them out, honey. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. All right, I think we thoroughly debunked the claim that drag is not appropriate for children. And now we are on to our misinformation number two, which is that exposing children to LGBTQ people or the existence of LGBTQ people is somehow harmful. So here is the talking point. It's best to avoid exposing our kids to LGBTQ plus people too early. As parents and caring adults, it is our role to support and guide our children. 
And because children are innocent and impressionable, we have to be careful about what they're exposed to before they're ready. Introducing children to adult topics and matters of sex and sexuality too early is harmful and inappropriate. They can learn about LGBTQ plus people and their lifestyles when they're older and better able to understand the topic and themselves. And now Reverend Delane is stepping up to tell us why this piece of misinformation is not so correct. First of all, I agree with some aspects of what Sean just shared. Of course, it's the adult's role to support and guide our children. And a big part of this definitely entails not exposing kids to things that they are not developmentally equipped to understand. I think about this all the time with my kids these days. They're ages 5 and 11 right now. I also know that withholding information about LGBTQ plus people is actually harmful and confusing for children. There is no such thing as being too young to know that LGBTQ plus people exist. And this is no more inherently sexual than knowing that straight and cisgender people exist. And it's just as important to proactively affirm, if not more important. The deeper motivation to withhold information is likely the idea that our human default settings and the idea that our best settings are straight and cisgender, and that parents can keep their kids aligned with these correct default settings by preventing their exposure to queerness until they are fully baked enough. In this myth, queerness, both with regard to sexuality and to gender, it's highly contagious. Kids coming out will cause social pressure for other kids to come out, and pretty soon your kid is queer when they shouldn't be. Take it from me, the person who revealed last week that she actually tried really hard through study and lots of peer exposure to turn herself gay, that it is a highly and ineffective method. Or don't just take it from me. Study after study confirms that queerness is contagious. When we encounter an impulse to avoid exposing children to LGBTQ plus people, whether that's an impulse that comes up in our own heart or it's an impulse that we notice in other people, we have to remember that knowledge is power. We know that all people, especially children, are better able to navigate life's many challenges and thrive when we give them accurate and affirming information about gender and sexuality, when we give them autonomy over their lives and over their bodies, and when we offer them supportive relationships that affirm their sacred belonging. Exposure to the existence of LGBTQ plus people is not confusing to children because children interpret the world by taking their cues from the adults in their lives. And our role as adults is to find developmentally appropriate ways to educate our kids. Silence on the existence of queer people in schools and other settings actually is confusing because it stands in such stark contrast to the presence of queer people in kids' peer groups, in their family, in the media, etc. Attempts to invisibilize LGBTQ plus people also ends up denying queer kids the opportunity to see positive affirmations and representations of their identities, which can leave them believing that who they are is wrong or shameful. It can leave them alone to get mired in shame, self-harm, substance abuse, or suicidality that can rob our kids of their joy and sometimes of their lives. Life is better when queer kids see themselves represented with humanity, honesty, information. Let us proactively and thoughtfully share with our children the whole spectrum of human gender expression and sexual orientation so they know that everyone belongs and everyone is worthy of love and so they can thrive in this life. A big old amen there that when queer kids can see their humanity affirmed, it is better for all of us. Yes. Amen. 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 Not just as a queer kid, but I think for everyone. All right, we're on to P misinformation number three, which is all about gender-affirming care. 
So Elaine is going to step up and give that good faith articulation of why gender-affirming care is dangerous. And then I am going to step up and share with all of you why gender-affirming care is not only safe, it reduces suffering, and it saves lives. Here's another point of misinformation that might feel familiar to you. It is not extreme to limit the ability of children from making life-altering decisions about their bodies before they are adults. Children are too young to apprehend the future consequences of gender-affirming care and are too young to know if their feelings of gender dysphoria, that is, their feelings of unease because of a mismatch between their biological sex and their gender identity, they're too young to know if they are real or if it's a phase or are manifestations of other mental health or environmental factors. Surgical or hormonal intervention can be life-altering and irreversible. Research on gender-affirming care is just too recent to conclude, to be conclusive as to its safety. There are big risks in terms of long-term fertility and side effects of hormone therapies and surgeries. There are cases of individuals who've undergone various types of gender-affirming care that have regretted their transition. Many people view gender traditionally as a binary and consider gender dysphoria a condition curable through mental health intervention alone. In summary, children are too young to receive gender-affirming care. The care is too experimental and risky and may be regretted because of the irreversible harm it causes. I think the crux of this issue comes down to this. Do we believe that children's gender dysphoria is real? Because if we do, then our collective obligation is to adopt an ethic of care that seeks to alleviate the debilitating and life-draining suffering that dysphoria creates through partnering with the child and their family to adopt evidence-based, safe, and effective strategies to tackle that dysphoria. Gender-affirming care at its heart says, we believe you about who you say you are, and we will partner with you in the journey towards greater alignment. Now, we do gender affirmation all the time. When Tommy asks for his hair to be cut short so it doesn't get in his eyes when he's playing football or simply because he wants to look like his dad, and we say yes, that is gender affirmation. We don't notice or even question actions like these because we inherently trust and believe children whose gender aligns with what was assigned to them at birth. But when a child tells us that they don't align, suddenly we become skeptical and suspicious of the child's capacity to know their own identity. But even as that suspicion rises within us, it's not generalized and extended to all children, but rather it applies only to trans, non-binary, gender-expansive, and queer children. Somehow, cisgender children are always old enough to know their gender, but trans and non-binary children never seem to be old enough to know theirs. But if we believe that children have the capacity, all children have the capacity, to tell us something about their gender, then our role as their family and community is to believe them and support them in finding the right type of gender affirmation. What gender affirming care looks like is really broad. It's a range of responses and interventions that affirm someone's gender identity and aids them in expressing that identity in their daily lives. Now, there's a lot of misinformation about gender-affirming care, so I want to talk through just a little bit. Gender-affirming care is always tailored to the individual desires, needs, and very important level of maturity of the individual seeking the care. As trans theorist and biologist Julia Serrano writes, transitioning is a matter of personal exploration, of finding what works for you on an individual level. And every young person seeking transition-related medical care first receives significant counseling and psychological assessments with standards set by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. 
And not all trans and non-binary people want to have medical intervention in the form of hormones or surgery. Gender-affirming care can begin with what is called a social transition, where a person adopts the name, pronouns, gender expressions, such as clothing or haircuts, that match their gender identity and begin to live their life socially from their own gender identity, be it all the time or just in certain safe places. This can occur as soon as a child expresses their gender identity and involves no medicalization at all. For some trans and non-binary children as they reach adolescence, gender-affirming care can look like taking puberty blockers. Medications would help delay advent of puberty and the physical changes that would occur with it. I mean, imagine that you have an inner feeling that you are a girl and know that in puberty, all of the changes that people assigned male at birth go through during puberty will start to happen to you. It can be a daunting experience, a violent experience to be forced to go through. Puberty blockers were first invented to protect cisgender children who experience a condition called precocious puberty, where puberty begins at ages, be ages before eight or nine years old. Imagine a four or five-year-old starting to go through puberty. Of course, we don't want that. I mean, we don't really want puberty for anyone. I mean, if we're honest, like it's good at the end of it, but during it, if we could skip it, it would be great, but we can't. So puberty blockers are a temporary measure and are meant to give children and families more time to determine what gender-affirming options they might want to adopt in the future without going through that puberty development that they may not want. It's only into adolescence that receiving hormone therapy, allowing for the development of gender-affirming characteristics in the body through hormones, or even later, nearing adulthood, that gender-affirming surgeries are even options. So what you can see from this is as the stakes increase, from just social stakes to uh, interventions in the body, as the stakes increase, the level of maturity necessary to undergo that increases as well. That is what gender-affirming care can look like. There's a lot more that can go into it, but that's kind of a good overview. But what about that fear of it being a phase? I'm going to invite you into a little thought experiment. Pretend you have a child that tells you that they are trans or non-binary, and it will turn out to be a phase. Now, the research generally shows that it doesn't, right? If your child tells you that they're trans or non-binary, they're probably going to end up in the trans and non-binary queer world. That's what the research said. But in our thought experiment, we're going to pretend that they don't. At this moment, though, your child fervently believes that this is their eternal truth. The question for all of you as parents is what type of parent do you want to be? You can be a deeply affirming parent who believes your child's truth and supports and affirms who they believe themselves to be, even if they grow and change in their own self-understanding over time. Or you can be a skeptical parent who doesn't trust your child's capacity to know who they are, because somehow you might know better. So you hold back on affirming who they are, and you risk your status as a trusted partner in their journey of self-discovery. When someone entrusts you with their gender truth, how you respond reveals who you will be on their journey. As for regret, it is true that some trans and non-binary people regret their transitions. Although the number is relatively small, in some studies it ranges from 1% to 10%. Even those people, though, who regret or detransition, many have vocally stated that they should not be used as examples to prevent other people from receiving care. Also, as just another fact, 14% of people regret getting their knees replaced. That's a lot of information, but I'm going to give you three bottom lines. First, gender-affirming care is safe. Major medical associations from across the world have studied and have been providing gender-affirming care for over 40 years. The medications and interventions have been studied and deemed safe by organizations like the Endocrine Society, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, 
the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Public Health Association, and the American Medical Association deems gender-affirming care as medically necessary. So gender-affirming care is safe. Bottom line two, gender-affirming care reduces suffering. A study published in the Journal of Adolescent Health found that a social transition during childhood or adolescence is not harmful to trans or gender diverse youth. In fact, trans and non-binary children who have socially transitioned demonstrated comparable levels of self-worth and depression to non-transgender children. I mean, those rates aren't great, but they're at least the same which is in striking contrast of the trans and non-binary children not allowed to socially transition who reported astronomical rates of anxiety, depression, and suicidality. Gender-affirming care reduces suffering. And finally, gender-affirming care saves lives. According to the Trevor Project's 2022 report, young trans and non-binary people who felt supported by their families reported attempting suicide at less than half the rate of those who didn't receive support. Receiving gender-affirming care in another study was associated with a 60% lower odds of experiencing moderate and severe depression. Gender-affirming care is safe, it reduces suffering, and it saves lives. And our faith's ethic of care demands that we support the validation of the scientific consensus and have compassion for the real struggles of trans and non-binary people in our communities. All right, we've arrived at piece of misinformation number four. Now this one, as Elaine is going to share in a minute, is one that is a little bit more nuanced in that it shows up in many different places across the political spectrum. It is about the threat that trans people, the existence and presence of trans people in various spaces have on women, on girls, uh, but also to general senses of safety. And so I'm going to turn it over to Elaine to give that good faith articulation. And then Gretchen is going to step up and provide a response. So up until this point, we've heard these talking points that come mostly from a right wing perspective. But our fourth and final talking point actually comes from folks all across the spectrum. And here it is. This is my good faith articulation of a talking point you might wanna, you might encounter, and then we're gonna hear Gretchen's take. Sex segregation is important in some places and spaces and does not automatically negate support for trans people generally. There is a big difference between supporting trans people and throwing open the doors of every bathroom and every sports team to every man who feels they are a woman. Growing up as a woman is a unique experience of oppression that trans men, trans women do not have and can never fully understand. Protecting women-only spaces protects women's sense of safety, belonging, and comfort. Experiences that for generations were not guaranteed for many women. Protecting women's only spaces is not in and of itself transphobic. For example, women's domestic violence shelters or women's spirituality groups. Additionally, it is not fair to have someone who's biologically male participate in women's sports. People who are biologically male have a natural physical advantage. Biological females are free to participate in men's sports, but why would they? They would just have an unfair disadvantage. Dismantling sex segregated spaces feels like just another attempt by the patriarchy to undo progress for women. A couple of weeks ago, I shared about some of my experiences growing up and especially experiences that were shaped as a girl growing up um, and those experiences from boys, like boys flipping my skirt up or assuming I shouldn't be on the math team. These kinds of experiences make this argument Elaine made feel really appealing, actually. I mean, the Women's Resource Center in Boulder, for example, or the Women's Bookstore in Denver, doesn't exist anymore, by the way. The lesbian bar in Seattle, those were all amazing life-saving spaces for me and for many others. I mean, I came of age in the 90s after all the heyday of the Take Back the Night rallies. Not to mention, I grew up as a competitive swimmer. I grew up practicing with the boys' team sometime, 
And there was no doubt that at a certain point, the girls' team couldn't quite keep up. These arguments, all of the arguments, they appeal to a sense of fairness and safety and belonging. But most of all, they appeal to a sense of fear, which makes us less likely to question some of the underlying assumptions of the argument or the way that these distract us from actual solutions to the problems it pretends to address. So to start, the argument, you might have heard it there, assumes that every person assigned male at birth, what you might call biological males, are exactly the same. Same level of hormones, same exact bodies, same male enculturation. But we know that this is actually not true. I mean, in addition to the fact that intersex people exist, and some of them have been assigned male at birth, even those who share some basic similar external anatomy, they have a great variety of other biological traits. Bodies are extremely diverse, and biology is complicated. So too is personal experience. So that to imagine that all so-called biological women have the exact same experience of oppression to draw from usually means that you mean biological white women. Or maybe straight, middle-class, able-bodied biological white women. Or really just whatever is your assumption of what a typical woman's experience is. Because the truth is, all women don't actually have that same shared experience of oppression to draw from in the first place. And even though it's true many trans women have not had an experience of growing up as a woman, they have had an experience of growing up as someone whose gender does not match what has been assigned to them, which is its own experience of oppression and lack of safety. So, banning trans people from bathrooms or other traditionally sex-segregated spaces based on some made-up notion of sameness does not actually ensure safety or community. Besides, if safety and community based on safeness were the real goal, then we would have to ask ourselves, whose safety and whose sameness? There's another troubling assumption embedded in this argument that you may have noticed, which is that women require a certain degree of protection, that that's normal. This is the fundamental assumption that led to the creation of sex-segregated public restrooms in the first place, which I noticed actually when um, Krissa was going through their talk that year of the arrest, 1888. Right, so that's the exact year the first law was put in place to have sex-segregated bathrooms in Massachusetts. I know, I didn't know that. So um, that happened in 1888. Other states started following suits, mandating women's and men's bathrooms because, this was their justification, Time Magazine describes it as women, policymakers argued, were inherently weaker and still in need of protection from the harsh realities of the public sphere. Thus, separate facilities were introduced in nearly every aspect of society, including restrooms. The suggested layouts of restrooms at the time were designed to mimic the comforts of home, where women were more safe, think curtains and chaise lounges. The idea that women are weaker automatically is also present in the argument for sports segregation. My personal anecdote about swimming seems to support this, except that researchers have repeatedly found that the correlation between sex and athletic ability is really never that clear-cut. And it may be that our strict segregation in sports may have led to the performance differences, rather than the differences being themselves inherent. And if you give yourself a minute to think past our automatic assumptions, our acculturated assumptions, we recognize that there's actually more diversity in athletic performance within a sex than there is between the sexes. 
Now, this does not negate the fact that bodies are different. As I said before, bodies are extremely diverse. But we already know how to handle body differences in sports without sex segregation. We do it in sports like wrestling or boxing or rowing through weight classifications. We do it with adaptive sports options for people with disabilities. Why could we not apply a similar structure across all of sports if fairness was our real concern? There are many ways to help make our lives more fair, more safe, and to help more people feel like they truly belong. But none of these are dependent on singling out trans people as the problem. Singling out trans people actually distracts us from addressing real barriers. Barriers like our underlying racism, sexism, classism, and ableism. And I suggest to you that this distraction is not an accident. So let us not get distracted or swayed by these arguments that just further marginalize people who are already marginalized. Let's keep our focus on the real enemy, which as our eighth principle reminds us is to dismantle racism and all other oppressions in ourselves, in our institutions, and in our world. Let us build beloved community, not by shutting people out, but by inviting more and more people. So at this point in our gathering on Sunday, we made a pivot, which is we move from combating misinformation to connecting in with our why. My friend and colleague, the Reverend Elizabeth Wynn, has this phrase that It's been stuck in my head this week. She says, some things are news and some things are family. You know, personally, this week has been hard. I've experienced just waves of fatigue and fear and anger with each flurry of news about laws passed, bills introduced, all targeting people that I consider my family because they are in my family, but also because it hits me personal. Because for me, this news isn't just news. It's family. And I know maybe for many of you who are listening, all of these laws, they may seem bad and wrong, but it kind of feels distant. It's like news about other people. You know, it's happening in other states. It doesn't maybe personally impact your family. But if we believe truly in the fundamental interdependence of life, that all of our struggles are caught up in that garment of destiny that Martin Luther King spoke of, then truly all of it is family. So I'm going to invite you to just take a moment to reflect on why this matters to you. I'm going to pose a few questions, and I want you to take a few minutes to answer. Answer for yourself. You can grab a notepad, pause, and write... I think the invitation to do this is because finding your why connects this quest for justice with your other justice commitments because they are not separate. You know, sometimes people say, oh, well, you know, I'm more committed to racism than this. Well, they're all connected. And knowing why helps us see those connections and act from them. So the first thing I want you to consider is Why is creating a world of gender liberation for all people, but especially trans and non-binary people, why is it important to you? It could be something you've learned in this Gender Fluence series. It could be something from your life. It could be a relationship you have or a commitment, a value. Just why is it important? When you have that why, I want you to pause and think, Underneath that why, what is the value that is its foundation? You might want to create a world of gender liberation for all people. It's important to you because you have a trans grandchild. The value under that undergirds that why is you value, you know, your grandchild, but you value uh, 
children's capacity to be free. You value the uh, the autonomy that they might get. You value the beauty they inv- invite into the world. You value that they get a fair chance to be who they are. Once you found that value, I want you to ask yourself, what from your own life? Could be a formative memory, a, a person, a place. Do you associate with that value? Like, why is that the value? If it's fairness, about equality, equity, compassion, where in your life instilled that value for you? It could be that you had an experience in which someone did not offer compassion towards you and you hold compassion as the deepest value. It could be that you had an experience of someone loving you even when you felt unlovable and you want all people to feel that. Take a moment and think, where does this value live within my life? Why is it formative? Why does it want me to move from this value? Because often when we find that story, it tells us not just what we quote-unquote value, but what we're going to fight for. And I'll give you a hint. When you've, you'll, find, you'll know you find the right thing when you start to feel something. And once you have that, I want you to find a pen, a piece of paper, type something out on your computer, I want you to answer this, 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 complete this sentence. Why I fight for trans and non-binary justice and gender liberation for all. Connect all of it. Why is this the world you want to create? What are the value? Why is that value so important to you? Connect it all together and articulate it in a sentence. Something that you can return back to when you're confused or struggling or when you're trying to find your way that you have this anchor that can help you guide yourself through it. And we're going to close the podcast listening to some beautiful music and a prayer that are woven together. It gives you some time to keep writing. But also, maybe you just need to receive this as a gift for you. It's an honoring of our joys and what we're called to do in the world, but also who we are. I thank you so much for listening. This is Reverend Gretchen Haley praying and some members of our community singing alongside our music director, Benjamin Hansen. Spirit of life and love, we have been carefully taught a world that is too small. And good students that we are, we have tried to study and practice and try to find our way to freedom anyway. Help us to break free of these old stories and these too small lives. Help us to find our voice so that we can weave a new world, one shaped by the transforming power of courageous love. we give thanks for trans lives and queer joy. We celebrate gender not as a battleground, but as a playground, a source of curiosity and self-expression, a way to affirm the goodness of humanity, the goodness of these bodies, the goodness of human diversity, and the gift that we are all always becoming. We are all always discovering, and we are all always growing in freedom and possibility. Hearts open.
hard work. Loving is glee-filled and glorious, pleasure-centered and life-giving. Teach us, Spirit, to play more, to swing higher in the swings, to laugh, to savor it all. Teach us to be thrilled. Teach us to learn what it is to really be free. Eyes open, shine. 